All right, children. All right, children. Have you ever seen an Irish wolfhound? Yes. What? They're huge. There's an Irish wolfhound walking in our neighborhood out in Richfield. And yes, they look mangy. Yeah, they do. Their hair is kind of weird. Gray, black, and then, I mean that. That dog is like this. And she says to me, it's a puppy. <laughs> but if you're familiar with Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, I'm, I'm confident that the dog used in that film for Sirius Black, he changes into this dog. What do they call that, Deacon? Anamagus. Anamagus, yeah. Is, is a, an Irish bloodhound. No, wolfhound. 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 I, yeah. I had never seen this dog before. I seen the film, and then when I saw that dog, I thought, Sirius Black. Watch yourself. Wherever he is, there's Dementors nearby. The Dementors, I know. I didn't. I should have. I was just so shocked, but I am. Um, and since my memory is failing me, I, I texted it into my phone. An Irish wolfhound. What are you laughing at? Do you resemble my remarks? <laughs> and I sent it to myself, Pat. <laughs> so then I get, why did I send this to myself? Where's Bob? Okay, look, there's to be a moratorium on Thursday doctor's appointments. You have to reserve this time. See, okay, well then either do it before or well after. All right, Psalm 23 out of the hymnal, we'll pray that. Uh, I think we'll pray it in unison today, okay? That means all together. <laughs> and the hymn, we'll do all three stanzas of 486, If Christ Had Not Been Raised From Death. Yep, that'll be in unison, too. All right. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. O good and faithful shepherd Jesus Christ, of your infinite love you lay down your life for us, your sheep. We give you praise and glory for your unspeakable grace and mercy. We beseech you, feed us upon the pleasant pastures of your word. Give us to drink of the waters of salvation and guide us by your Holy Spirit that as you know us and continually minister to our need, even so may we know you. Gladly hear your voice and follow you through the valley of the shadow of death. Deliver us from all our foes until your whole flock shall be gathered about you in the resurrection on the last day. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. From the table of duties in the Catechism, what does God's Word say of wives? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. This is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. O Lord Jesus, by your word and spirit, fashion all Christian women into wives made in the image of your bride, the church. Teach them to submit to their husbands as to you, their Lord and Savior. Give them hearts that trust in your word, honor their husbands, and look to them for love and spiritual headship. Deliver them from all fear and faithlessness. Where their husbands fail them, support them with your grace and let them find their sufficiency in you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, bless all of the baptized faithful and preserve them in the true faith throughout the days of their pilgrimage. We especially pray for Jim, Gary, Jason, Lyle, John, Kevin, Joe, Fritz, Mary Lou, David, Matthew, and Rachel. We commend to you Bob and Sandy, Pat and Sharon, Mark and Holly, Eric and Kayla, Mike and Angie celebrating wedding anniversaries. Preserve them in their marriages, sustain them with the absolute promise of love in Christ Jesus, the heavenly bridegroom. 
Bless James Kirk, who has received a divine call to be associate pastor at Emanuel Lutheran Church in Crystal Lake, Illinois. And bring healing and renewed strength to the sick according to your will, especially Harold, who is hospitalized, Richard, Walt, Dawn, Jan, Mark, Kathleen, Tanya, Dennis, Gabby, Mike, Peyton, Kathy, and Heather. All this we ask and lay before you every need in the words our Savior taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hymn 486. If Christ had not been raised from death, our faith would be in vain. Our preaching but a waste of breath, our sin and guilt remain. But now the Lord is risen indeed, he rules in earth and heaven. His gospel meets a world of need. In Christ we are forgiven. If Christ still lay within the tomb, then death would be the end. And we should face our final doom with neither guide nor friend. But now the Savior is raised up, so when a Christian dies, we mourn yet look to God in hope, in Christ the saints arise. If Christ had not been truly raised, his church would live a lie. His name should nevermore be praised, his words deserve to die. But now a great Redeemer is, through him we are restored. His word endures, his church revives, in Christ our risen Lord. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen Matthew 26. I didn't consult with Pastor Gelbach to see if he had followed my instructions or not. Did he? Are you sure? What, 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 what did he tell you? I'll... Well, we won't repeat that. <laughs> so, what's that? He didn't go past it, though, did he? All right, so, so he was supposed to go up to basically verse 35. 
All right, great. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It's the first time my instructions have been followed and no. Just kidding. What's that? Yes. We have this perennial problem in choir. That when I want the choir to get softer in volume, invariably they get slower. I didn't say, I didn't say slower, I said softer. Well, anyway. But part of the reason, and, and when people get softer, they tend to make their mouths close up. Instead, they should be soft like this, with their mouths wide open. All right. Did you know that hymn, by the way, if Christ had not been raised from? Okay. Christopher Idle, do you know that? Well, he was at least at the time of the printing in 2006. I, I thought he was another Lutheran. That's why I asked the, but, yeah. Well, you don't have to do that and miss the, uh, okay. So we're going to go into the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And um, I want to read for you verses 36 through 46 and then make some general comments and then come back. Uh, to walk through these, these texts in a little more detail, okay? So, remember, they had been in the upper room, they had been celebrating the Passover. That upper room was most likely the home of the parents of John Mark, who became the evangelist, the rich young man. Uh, that was most likely his parents' home. And it's that upper room that they not only celebrated the Passover in, but it's also that upper room that they went to and were locked behind closed doors for fear of the Jews on Easter night and then a week later. So it's kind of a significant home. Um, you can find, if you read through all of the Gospels looking for it, you can find all of these subtle references to the extended community of faith that offered support um, temporal support, help, counsel, and so forth. So we, we always tend to focus just on the apostles, the 12 disciples, but there was a whole band of women that attended them, um, and then there were others like John Mark's uh, parents who offered the upper room to them. All right, so in, in the upper room, celebrating the Passover, instituting the Lord's Supper, washing the disciples' feet, an extensive catechesis on the, uh, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, whom the Father would send, uh, is all in John's Gospel. The Synoptic Gospels don't include all of that catechesis, but the events of the, uh, the Passover celebration, the institution of the Supper, and then the prediction of the, uh, of the betrayal and the prediction of Peter's denial. But there's a lot that happened in the upper room, a lot of instruction by Jesus, some of the most 
comforting. Luther has an entire uh, volume in the English American edition of Luther's works on chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 of uh, John's Gospel. It's rich stuff. But they've left the upper room then, and all of the disciples, save Judas, went to the Mount of Olives. Peter, James, and John are taken closer in, so to speak, with Jesus. So verse 36, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him. See, So the other disciples are sitting in one location. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, he who betrays me is at hand. I wanted you to have the full sweep of that section in Matthew's account in your, fresh in your mind before making some general comments. The life of prayer. If I were to ask you, when do we need prayer the most? What would you say? George says all the time? Yeah. That's one way of looking at it. Any other thoughts on that? When we're the weakest? Okay, Kathy? Sometimes when things are the best, because that's when we kind of forget about God. When things, things are, are the best, we forget about God? Yeah, when everything's going great, we tend to forget about it. You know, it's like we go to them when there's problems. Okay. 
when we are under great distress, we would need it too, then, right? So let me, let me flip the question around. What, what deters us from praying? What, what's that? Our thoughts? Okay. Pat, were you going to say something? Shame. Shame? You don't feel worthy. Okay. Of course, none of us are worthy. The worthiness comes from Christ. Other things, deterrence to prayer. I can do it myself. The father of lies, who is Satan. What do you mean? You want to elaborate on that a little bit? That he deters us from prayer. Yes. Okay. Other things in our lives? Okay, try this on for size. I find it very easy to pray when we're up north at Joanne Smith's cottage. We're getting rest. We don't have any other responsibilities. It's relaxed. And when there's the busyness of life, or when there's fatigue, I'm just too tired. Okay, now nobody mentioned those kinds of things. But when I'm fatigued, or too tired, or pressed about with so many other concerns or what have you, those are among the times we need it most. Okay? But uh, mentioning when I find it easy and when I find it difficult is what also illustrates the common problem that we all have that someone else did not have. Who's that someone else did not have these problems? Yeah. He not only prayed when he was well rested, when he had eaten a good meal, perhaps in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but also at the most intense times of his life. He just simply never failed to pray. To put it another way, he was never too busy. He was never too tired. He was never too preoccupied. He was never too afraid. He was never too ashamed to pray. When the Apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing, that is what Jesus did in his life and conduct. In Psalm, uh, you don't have to look at it, I'll just read it to you. In Psalm 55, and there's other Psalms that are like this, 
Psalm 55, verse 16 and 17. As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. He has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle which was against me. For there were many against me. God will hear and afflict them, even he who abides from of old. Cast your burden, then verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Now maybe you wanted to look that up. You could look that up. But those words are in the mouth of Jesus, and they describe Jesus. So I understand that there was a little bit of a, um, controversy that Pastor Gelbach received afterwards about Jesus praying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mel Gibson has it right in his film, The Passion of the Christ, when in the Garden of Gethsemane, you hear Jesus praying the Psalms. Because that's what he did. Do you think Luther, uh, Luther, who had the Psalms memorized in Latin, knew more than Jesus? Good. If, if Luther, who memorized the Psalms in Latin and prayed them, according to the hours of the day, what are all the hours, Mark? You're better at this than I am. Yeah, and there's a way in which that discipline teaches you to stand down, right? Yeah. And that too comes from the Psalm, Psalm 119. Yeah. Seven times a day will I praise you. Seven times a day will I praise you. Yep. So this Psalm 55, you know, this is what Jesus' life was. That's why I've, I have said to you before, you know, he went out a great while before day and prayed, or he retired in the evening and prayed, and so forth. So um, when we, in the face of the fiercest dangers, often fail, like the disciples, what? Could you not watch and pray lest you enter into temptation? What they could not do, he did. Not just in, you know, a flippant sort of way, but in a very disciplined, patterned way. Okay? So all of the references to Jesus praying in the Gospels beg the question, what did he use? What was his prayer book? And the church fathers are perhaps best 
at underscoring this, he prayed the Psalms. You search the scriptures, he told the Jews. For in them you think you have eternal life, John 5, 39. And these are they which testify of me. So when we see in the Psalter the distress, the anguish, we are hearing the distress and anguish that Jesus bore for us and then articulated in his prayers. The thing I like about Psalm 22 is, I don't know how many years before I became a pastor, I didn't realize that it was in the Bible. In other words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is not a verse plucked out of thin air, or just as, you know, that he is quoting Psalm 22. Nevertheless, you made me trust in you when I was at my mother's breast. That's also Psalm 22. So the rhetorical question of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is what the evangelists record, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, they record it there because there's a, an important assertion in that. He was forsaken. That's the nature of his suffering. Who can understand this? And why was he forsaken? Because the iniquity of the world was laid upon him. Does that mean that he had no faith? By no means. But it absolutely means he was experiencing that anguish which we now see in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was experiencing real spiritual suffering. Why? Why had God forsaken him? Because the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all and the wrath of God and the punishment that we deserved. And what the mystery of the cross is, is Psalm 22 says, Yet I trust in you. And I have trusted you and I will continue to trust in you even though what he is experiencing is the bitterness and the blackness of being forsaken by God. Do you follow that? So Psalm 22 is the necessary um, understanding of Jesus' prayer from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay. So Pastor Gelbach is correct. He is not just praying that one verse but he is praying the entire psalm because he, he knew all the psalms by heart and he prayed them by heart. Okay. It's just like Mary, when we looked at uh, uh, her visitation to Elizabeth, when she greeted Elizabeth, the babe in her womb leapt for joy. The greeting was not, howdy cousin. The greeting was, Elizabeth opens the door and Mary prophesies, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. It's the Magnificat. That's the greeting that caused baby John to leap for joy, and that's the greeting, because it was inspired by God, that poured forth the Holy Spirit on Elizabeth so that she would prophesy. It was quite a sacramental moment in that visitation because the angel Gabriel said, your cousin Elizabeth is six months with child. Immediately she went there and that word from the angel Gabriel was corroborated in the pregnant, six month pregnant Elizabeth. So the, the door opens and she sees Elizabeth just as the word of the Lord through the angel Gabriel had said. And she overflows with this greeting 
he who is mighty has done great things for me and so forth. Okay. Got to pay attention to the Bible. The Bible has a lot of stuff in it. All right, let's go to the, uh, unless you have a comment on what I just said here, but Mark. Well, I just wanted to, uh, Father Patrick Henry Reardon has a phenomenal book called Christ and the Psalms. Phenomenal book. The whole Psalms writes. And then secondly, just a question to refresh my memory. I mean, didn't Luther begin as a teacher of the Psalms? Yes, he did. Yeah, which is very important because his, finally, his gospel-centered interpretation of the scriptures and the Christology of the justification of the sinner before God by grace through faith alone began in that meditation and serious pilgrimage through the Psalter. And I mean, when you know something by heart, see, if you know it, he knew it in Latin by heart, But Latin and now the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but then the Septuagint is the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament uh, that Jesus also quoted from in the Gospels. Latin and Greek are very close um, linguistically and so forth. So um, you're kind of closer to the original in Latin probably than you are in English or some other language. But he knew it in Latin and so the the way in which knowing something by heart, 150 Psalms by heart, you could say that's impossible. No it isn't because they, uh, Fritz Eckert, uh, our friend, he knows the King James Bible uh, Psalter by heart. So, okay, let's come now then down to the specifics here. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. It is an olive uh, grove. You can still go there today on the Mount of Olives and see these hundreds of year old olive trees which are very fat and full of all these. um, Yeah. Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Now why does he take them with him. <laughs> As witnesses, right? Yeah, that's right. That's I, they are witnessing yeah. these things. So the, the, the apostles and particularly these inner three get to witness the greatest joys. Peter, James, and John are there at the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, and the greatest sorrows here in the garden. Now, does that mean they grasped it all? No. So they were able to tell Matthew too. Yes. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Sorrow. Was ist das? What does that mean? Sorrow. What is sorrow? How do you define sorrow? Sadness? Grief? What's that? Heartbreaking? Do you remember before the flood, the beginning of the narrative in Genesis 6? God was sorrowful. That's really the import there. 
that he was sorrowful at what had become of his creation. And, you, and again, the question always arises, then why did he create? Yeah, it would be better off, wouldn't it, if none of you existed? Wouldn't that be better if none of you existed? No. <laughs> of course it wouldn't be better. But that doesn't mean that sorrow doesn't fill our hearts. If I had known my children were going to be naughty, I would never have had children. So it'd be better if they didn't exist. I don't feel that way now. That doesn't mean that we didn't know deep sorrow. Sorrow is always associated with another important four-letter word, love. Where there is no love, I want you to think about this, there is no sorrow. The devil does not know sorrow. He's incapable of knowing sorrow, absolutely incapable of it, because he does not know love. He can, know, he can know the love of God intellectually, so to speak, the, the devil's intellect, but he doesn't know it because it's foreign to his nature. So sorrow is associated with love. And here we're talking about the self-giving, sacrificial love of God. He said to them, verse 38, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And what you see in Jesus' words is how this love that causes his sorrow is rooted in the reality that he knows according to his nature, which he shares with the Father, that he must go through this. He absolutely must go through this. Stay here and watch with me. Now, watch. Let's see if you can remember me teaching you these things in the past. Whenever you find the term watch in the scriptures, you're talking about what? You're talking about prayer, but there's something else. The word. You're talking about a vigil in the word. So word and prayer go together. So at the Easter vigil, we've got word and prayer. Okay? The word of God and then those colics that, that flow out of the word. So to watch, to watch and pray, as he said to them earlier, stay here with me, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. It's not like going to a Brewers game. <laughs> hey, look at hers! Yelich missed another one, went through his legs. You know, watching. Watching always involves the Word of God, always. Attentiveness to the Word of God. Because that is the ground of faith, the foundation for faith, the ground of certainty. So, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death, Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, 
O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, what does the cup signify? His crucifixion, his passion. Will you, so you can see it, turn to Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15. Jeremiah 25. <coughs> 15. Thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury. Is that what you have? Wrath. wrath. Okay, that's better. Take this wine cup of wrath from me, from my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings, its princes, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing, and a curse as it is this day. So there you see how the cup in Jeremiah signifies God's wrath against rebellion, against transgression, against idolatrous worship. So when Jesus, now in Matthew 26, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, he's referring to that cup the cup of wrath. Now, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Is that the proper prayer for him to pray? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> you can't say no to that. Absolutely, you can't say no to that. What's going on here? I've often referred back to the Garden of Eden. And what Adam and Eve should have held fast to, they so quickly let go of and threw away. So Jesus, as the second Adam, holds fast to that which Adam and Eve so quickly threw away. And what does he hold fast to? God's word, his relationship with his father. Okay, let me ask you this. Is it right for a man to never, ever, 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 ever want to be separated from God? Is that right? Yeah. Absolutely it's right. That's what you see in Jesus. When we confess from the catechism, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also 
True man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. We see what a man really is in Jesus. Not independent, I don't need you, but a man who is absolutely dependent upon his father. And a man who does not wish to be separated from his father. That is the right inclination, the correct desire. Then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there you see what a man is. To trust in God even if it means death, suffering, persecution, hardship. So we see what it is to be a man in Jesus. A man of absolute, resolute faith. Okay? Not my will, but thine be done. And that's ultimately what all prayer is saying. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that prayer is not bending God's will to ours, but asking him to make his will our will. And that's what you see here in Jesus. Then he came and the disciples found them asleep and said to Peter, what, could you not watch with me one hour? And of course, the answer is no. And that's why I asked those questions about what deters you from praying, you know, and when do you need prayer the most? It is really a good thing that our salvation does not rest upon the faithfulness, diligence, perseverance, regularity, confidence of our prayers. Because if it did, no flesh would be saved. <laughs> Which is not the encouragement to ignore <laughs> prayer. Don't, don't misunderstand. But, but Luther underscores this in various parts of his explanation in the Lord's Prayer, small catechism. Like under the fourth petition, it's really explicit. Give us this day our daily bread. What does this mean? God certainly gives daily bread only to those who faithfully and diligently pray to him and never fail to do so, and he never provides a bit of daily bread to those who don't. That's not what it says. God certainly gives daily bread to everyone without our prayers, even to all evil people. Then why are we praying for daily bread? <coughs> but we pray in this petition that God would lead us to realize this and to receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. Okay? But you have it elsewhere too. First petition, hallowed be thy name. God's name is certainly holy in itself. We pray in this petition it may be kept holy among us also, but our prayers don't make God's name, whole, God's name holy. It is. Second petition, thy kingdom come. The kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer. Thanks be to God. We pray in this petition it may come to us also. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The good and gracious will of God is done even without our prayer. We pray in this petition it may be done among us also. Okay? So that's the good news. That God does not act or save us because we are the most diligent and faithful in our prayers. Which doesn't mean he doesn't want us to be diligent and faithful in our prayers. 
but it does underscore how he does what he does and he acts the way he acts out of grace in the promise of, of the gospel, not on the basis of our spiritual piety. Which means no matter who you are or how weak and stumbling and bumbling your prayers have been, your baptism and the grace of God, I think Pat, you mentioned that, this in Christ, that's what gives us access to God. Okay? So that means that you and I have just as much access to God as any holy man, be it the Pope or an apostle or Luther, because the access to God is through Christ, who is our faithful Savior and whose death and the shedding of his blood opened the kingdom of God to us. Okay. All right. Now, look at what he says further to Peter, though. Could you not watch with me one hour? The answer is no. Watch and pray. There's the language of vigil again. Be attentive to the word of God and crying out in the voice of faith, lest you enter into temptation. That is, fall prey to the devil's accusation. You can't trust God. And then he says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, shall I, shall I scandalize you, say, and say, the flesh is actually strong. Okay. When, when, when Jesus says the flesh is weak, what that means is the flesh has absolutely no power to cause you to act rightly in spiritual matters. So what it means when it says the flesh is weak, the flesh is actually very strong. The strength of the old Adam is such that we, our worship and prayers falter. We do not let God's love have its way with us, and so our love for others fails. So the flesh is actually quite powerful. It is totally weak when it comes to spiritual matters. Okay? So when you see in the Passion Week, what tends to govern the apostles? The spirit or the flesh? The flesh. Okay? And sometimes the flesh manifests itself in ways that seem to be quite strong. But it's actually weakness and wrong. Like when Peter pulls his dagger out and lops off the ear of the high priest's servant. Okay, so verse 42, he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And I can sympathize. They had lamb, unleavened bread. They drank wine. They listened to Jesus' extensive catechesis, longer than our coffee break Bible study. It's at night. It's after dark. And then they go out into the cool of the evening to the Garden of Gethsemane. There's not a one of us in this room that wouldn't have fallen asleep as well. So he left them, went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And this Trinitarian character of his prayers, the, the completeness, the total resolve to rest in the Father's will. If Jesus needed to pray like this, how much more 
do we? Since we don't, how much more do we need him? And so remember this, the ascension of our Lord, which we will celebrate very soon, means in part that he sits at the Father's right hand in glory and continually intercedes for us at the throne of grace. And the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, Paul says, but he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So we rest our confidence not in our spiritual disciplines, even though I encourage many spiritual disciplines, otherwise I wouldn't give you the congregation at prayer, but we rest our hope and comfort in the faithfulness of Christ who's, who prays without ceasing for us and for our salvation. Okay, verse 45. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. Look, the hour is at hand. That refers to his crucifixion. The hour is at hand, has drawn near. We're at the threshold of it. This is the day of the Lord, which refers to the great death and resurrection work of salvation. It's all one. That's why we call the triduum, if you've heard that expression, from Holy Thursday night. It's why there's generally no benediction until the end of the vigil. So through Good Friday and so forth, because that's all one unit, the day of the Lord, his death and resurrection. So, behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, he who betrays me is at hand. Now remember what Jesus said earlier, chapter 16 and 17. If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Rise, let us be going. Where is he going? Let us be going. Now notice in that confession, that assertion there, that is the answer to his prayer. And he confesses the answer to his prayer. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. At the end of the praying, rise, let us be going. His heart is fixed on the Father's will to go to the cross. And then he invites them to come along. If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Then immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. All right. Now, I've got a lot to say about this section, too, 47 through 56, including some Old Testament references. But some of you have appointments, and it's already 1030. So I'm going to stop it here because I want to take this as a unit. Okay? Our goal, we'll be meeting through the Thursdays, the first week of June. First or second week? First or second? I think second. I'm gone. 
the through the first Thursday in June. I'll remind you of that. I'm leaving the next day. Yeah. So early June. Yes. Oh. Julie, sorry. Christine Franklin, you can't hear her. She was talking with Christine Franklin. Yeah, I, I, a couple, I'll try to speak. A couple days ago, she is with her friend uh, whose husband died in the plane crash. Um, we prayed for him a couple weeks ago. And Christine thought, and I agree with her, that it would be really nice if members of our Bible class would send her some cards of encouragement assure her of the Lord's love for her at this difficult time and so forth. And so, in order to make it really easy <laughs> to do that, I brought some cards and some labels with her address and some stamps. The wife's name is Maria. Maria Williams, and she lives in North Carolina. And the husband that was, was killed was Kurt, with a K. Yeah. So if you are interested in able to talk to Julie. No, I don't. They're on field trip. You can stay right here. Thank you very much. Oh, parting is such sweet sorrow. You're welcome. You too.